So we're in the book of Hebrews tonight, chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 7 through 15. Hebrews 3, 7 through 15. The title of the message is The Danger of Disbelief. So we're going to look at this warning from the writer. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for your love for us, Lord, and for your word. Lord, I pray that as the psalmist says, Lord, that we would have a united heart. And then as James spoke about, Lord, that we would have that single focus. Or that we wouldn't be double-minded in any way about our faith, Lord, but we would be solely focused on you. Lord, live in our life for your glory. Lord, we know that we have a flesh, and or the enemy does attack. But yet, Lord, we know that you'll give us victory, Lord, as we abide in you. And Lord, we pray that you would use us, Lord, and you would teach us. And Lord, as we go through your word, that you would make us both teachable and also able to teach others. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight we do come to that second warning passage of the book of Hebrews. This warning can be summarized in verse 12. The writer says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And so this warning was sent to a group of Jewish Christians who were under persecution. They were under pressure from the Jewish culture. And based on these things and probably others that were not told, they were contemplating set aside their Christian faith and going back to Judaism. So they thought, hey, we'll go back to Judaism, we'll, we'll set aside our Christian faith, and this will solve all of our issues. We won't have persecution anymore. We'll have peace. You know, there won't be more tensions. But the writer in this letter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, exhorts them as a loving brother and also as a pastor and says, flat out, that's foolish. That's crazy. So far we have seen that Jesus is greater than anything Judaism could offer. And that's one of the sub-themes in this book. Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. So far we have seen that Jesus is greater than the prophets. Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than Moses is what we focused on last week. Also, another theme in this book is that because God loves his children, he disciplines them for disobedience. And there's five warning passages in this book, and each one of them speaks of God's discipline to these believers if they would turn their back on him. So as we focus on these believers' disobedience, and you know, really this contemplating of disobedience and uh, the discipline for it, we'll focus on Israel's prophetic history in the past and also the writer's pointed application today and now. So first we look back in verses 7 through 11, by looking at Israel's prophetic history. First in verse 7, he says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice. And so the writer, again, will use this word, therefore. And so as you read through this book, he's always saying, well, therefore, well, therefore, well, therefore. I mean, he's building everything on what he just got done saying. It's an argument. It's, it's, it's a, he's using it very logically. So this warning here that we're approaching now, is as a result of what we just learned in verses one through six. Last week, as I said, we learned that Jesus is greater than Moses. And so the writer's gonna take that and say, well, hey, check this out, guys. If the children of Israel were judged for disobeying the word of God spoken through Moses, how much more is it important for Christians to not turn their back on the gospel of Jesus Christ? He, Jesus is the one who bought our salvation through the cross. 
And so it's, a, it's an argument for you know, the fact that, hey, Jesus is greater. Don't turn your back on him. The way that the writer would exhort them is by pointing to the word of God. It's not his own opinion that he's talking about here. He points to the scriptures. And the passage that he quotes here in these verses is Psalm 95, verses 8 through 11. Now, notice he doesn't mention the author of this psalm, but he talks about the source of this psalm. He talked about the source of the scriptures. He says, as the Holy Spirit says. And so the writer clearly believed that the Old Testament was the word of God, that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Yes, God did use men to pen the scriptures, but the source behind the scriptures is God. Peter talked about that in 1 Peter. He says that God moved the prophets. He moved the prophets. They wrote as they were under the inspiration of the Spirit. And so, yes, men wrote as they were you know, moved by God, but God oversaw the process to what they wrote was exactly what God wanted written. It's the inspired, inerrant word of God. Not only is the word inspired, but because it's inspired, it's authoritative. And that's really the basis of the Bible. That's how the writers use the Bible. It's authority. It's our authority for life. I mean, he says, hey guys, I'm gonna, I'm gonna warn you right now and the way I'm gonna do it is not point to my opinion, but I'm gonna give you the word of God and then you need to hear it and submit to it. Plain and simple, right? And Jesus did the same thing. I mean, often when Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees, yes, Jesus did use logic and kind of turn their arguments on, you know, on their head, but often he pointed to the scriptures. And he said, well, wait a second. That's not what it says in the beginning. Remember that when the Pharisees were questioning him about divorce and Moses? He says, that's not what it says in the beginning. God said in the beginning, God made them male and female. So he pointed to Genesis. And over and over and over, Jesus used the word of God as authority. And if Jesus believed that the Bible is the word of God and used it as his authority, well, then we should do the same. Now, the writer quotes Psalm 95, which begins with the word today. It begins with this word today. And so God, through his word, was speaking to the Jews in the Old Testament at that time. He was speaking to the Hebrews right then And you know what? He's speaking to you and I today. Regardless of the time period or the culture that we live, the word of God is applicable and prophetic today. Today, if you'll hear his voice. The word of God is speaking to us. Now notice the voice of God is heard through the word of God. If you'll hear his voice, today if you'll hear God's voice. If you want God to speak to you, well then you need to read the word of God. This is why the enemy's biggest attack is on the Bible and trying to keep people away from the Bible. Some of Satan's first attacks in the scriptures in the book of Genesis was on the word of God. Remember he came to Eve and said, has God said you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? God didn't say that. And then he goes on and tries to slander the character of God for being evil, you know, for trying to hold something back good for me. But the enemy's attack is always on the word of God. It could be through evolution, trying to deny the truth of the word of God, it could be through false teaching and trying to distort the word of God through the cults around us. Or it could be through, you know, people becoming apostate and churches not even wanting to teach the word of God. Thinking, well, if we teach the Bible, people won't come. And so, because people don't want to hear it, they want to heap up teachers, you know, who will kind of itch their ears. And so they won't do it. And so they won't teach the Bible. But the Bible says that we need to hear it because it's God's voice to us through the scriptures. 
this reminds me of what the late Dr. McGee would say. My friend, God is speaking through his word. Now will you listen to him? Right? That's what he would say as, as, you would, as you would come to this passage. Verse eight, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness. And so God throughout the ages has spoken to man pointedly about hardening their heart against his word. I mean, this is some, this is some of God's biggest, um, you know, um, dealings with man is with man's heart. God is always dealing with man's heart. This warning goes all the way back to the beginning, to the story of Cain and Abel. Remember that story? Genesis 4 says, right after Adam and Eve fell, you know, and some time elapsed from there because Cain and Abel, they weren't little boys. They were grown ups. They had jobs. And they brought their offerings to God. Abel followed the principle that God established in the garden, that in order to approach him, you need to approach him with a sacrifice. Something must die in your place to approach God. He brought God a lamb. Cain brought God the fruit of the ground. Well, that's not what God established. And when God didn't accept Cain's offering, but he accepted Abel's offering, Cain began to get mad. He began to harden his heart against God. And here's what God said to him. Genesis 4, 6 to 7. Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. God had, God had given Cain sufficient grace to turn from his anger and to offer the sacrifice that Abel offered. Through God's word and through, through you know, his enabling, Cain can turn from his sin. But rather, Cain didn't heed God's warning. Rather, he hardened his heart and rebelled against God. And we see exactly where that took him, right? Took him south. And then eventually he ended up fathering a whole generation of people, a whole group of people who did not know God. It's sad. But it all begins with the heart. Now this warning to the Hebrews is a very important warning. He says, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. The hard heart is seen even today in the parable of the sower. Jesus in those parables, they call them the kingdom parables. It describes the work of God in between the first and second coming of Jesus. And during that time, Jesus says, it's gonna be an age of evangelism in which the gospel goes out to the whole world. Well, the gospel is gonna fall on many different hearts. One heart, the good heart, is the one that receives it and applies it and bears fruit and fruit that remains. But the first heart that he talked about was the hard ground. The seed fell on that heart. It was hard, right? And the birds, which is Satan, he says later, came and ate the seed off the heart. It didn't bear fruit because it was a hard heart. That pictures people who hear the word of God but close their heart to it. They want nothing to do with it. And as I said, that has been, that's been happening throughout the entire Bible. God dealing with man's heart. Even today, it's, it's happening. But the writer wants to make a case in point for these Jews here. And so he points to one of the biggest epic failures in history of Israel. It's the rebellion. Not just a rebellion, it's the rebellion. And they all knew what it was. Older translations, you might have the King James Version or the ASV, translates this word, the provocation. That's a big word, provocation. The Greek word, um, this Greek word means to provoke or irritate to anger. And so that's what it, it was a time of irritating and, and provoking of God. In that specific time, the writer says here very clearly, is the day of trial in the wilderness. 
That's when Israel provoked God. It was in the day of trial in the wilderness. This day of trial was in Numbers 13 and 14 in the Old Testament. Most of you know the story. God delivered Israel out of Egypt. God promised that he would give Israel the land according to the Abrahamic covenant. And God fulfilled that promise. He met Moses and says, hey Moses, I'm fulfilling my promise now to Abraham. I want you to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. He's not gonna let them go, but I'm gonna bring judgments and he's gonna let them go. And just as God said, he did. God brought 10 plagues on Egypt after what? Pharaoh hardened his heart, right? Hardened his heart, hardened his heart. God strove with him. He could have repented, but he didn't. He hardened his heart because that judgment came. Well, God delivered Israel out of Egypt, led them through the Red Sea, that miracle there. And there he led them to Mount Sinai. And there at Mount Sinai, God was gonna make them a holy nation, his own special people, a royal priesthood. And there God began giving them his law and instructed them and preparing them because God was gonna have amazing things for them as they would come into the land of Canaan. After a time of preparation, God led them from Mount Sinai to the border of the promised land known as Kadesh Barnea. And there they stopped and camped. Well, the Jews had an idea. They came to Moses with it. They said, hey, can we send spies in to go look at the land? And Moses agreed to the request. So he said, okay, let's do this. Let's send one spy from each tribe to go and spy out the land and, and see what it's like. Then you guys can come back and give us a report. So they did that. Well, when these spies came back, 10 of the 12 gave a discouraging report to the people. They said, guys, we went in there and the people are like giants. We're like grasshoppers compared to them. The cities, they're like walled cities. They're fortified. We should not go into this land. If we do, we're gonna be destroyed. And Joshua and Caleb and Moses were beside themselves. They're just like, you guys are crazy. No, let's go in and take the land. God has given it to us. Let's not rebel against him. Let's trust him. Now, what do the people do? Well, they didn't heed the words of Moses or God, but rather they rebelled against God. Here's what Numbers 14, one through 10 says. It's kind of a long section. Um, you can listen or follow along. This is what it says. It says, so all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to him, if only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in the wilderness. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword? that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not have been better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among them, or among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, the land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. And if the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread, and, our, and their protection has departed from them. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. And now the Lord... Uh, excuse me, now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the, all the children of Israel. And so that's, that's the response to it, to the word. They said, hey guys, God has spoken. He's given us this land. 
let's go in and take it. And what do the people do? They harden their heart. Moses, Joshua, and Caleb clearly understood what the people were doing. They said it there. They said, do not rebel against God. It wasn't that they were just afraid. They were rebelling against God in his word. God had commanded them, and they were choosing not to. Now, because of Israel's disobedience, we see God's discipline of them later on in verses 26 to 32. And here's what the Lord said. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who are numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. But your little ones whom you said would be victims, I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in the wilderness. And so that was the judgment on that Jewish generation that rebelled against God and his word. What was that judgment? That judgment was that after 40 years would come physical death. They would die in the wilderness. Now it's important to note that this generation wasn't lost. They weren't gonna be sent to hell. They repented after this and God forgave their sin. But yet 40 years later, they would die a physical death as a result of the judgment of God. Now we see the writer's commentary on this in Psalm 95, and uh, it's actually given in verses nine through 11 of that Psalm. Here's what the writer says concerning Israel's failure in this event. He says, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years, therefore I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And so Israel's historical disobedience tested God. It tried him. What does that mean? To test and try means that they put God in a place where he had to react or respond in justice. Our kids are doing, our kids are good at doing this, aren't they? Are they not? Good at putting us in a place where we have to react? We're like, hey man, I wanna give you this fruit snack. Just, just obey me. No, you're dumb. Ugh. Okay, what am I to do now? I have to respond and act, right? I have to discipline them for that. I can't let them get by with that. It's not okay. Well, the same, it's, it's the same thing that Israel did to them here. Israel tested God. They provoked him. In other words, they put him in a place where he had to respond. Jesus told Satan, you shall not test God. Well, what does that mean? To test God means to put him in a, in a place where he had to respond. So Jesus wasn't gonna throw himself off the, off the mount as Satan wanted, because he didn't wanna put himself in a place where God had to respond. And that's exactly what they did. They put him in a place where the, he had to respond in justice. Now Israel put God in this place, and just as God said, he did. That generation saw the works of God for 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Yes, God was with them, he, he loved them, and he, he forgave their sin, but yet there was still consequences for that one act of disobedience for rebelling against him. After 40 years, that entire, wander, that entire wandering generation died in the wilderness. Now, it wasn't God's fault. God intended that they would have rest in the land. 
And that rest would be a, a blessed, victorious life over their enemies, enjoying the land of milk and honey. But because of their disobedience to God, God um, gave them that judgment. Now, this is not only seen in generations, but this is also seen in individuals. Think about Moses and Aaron. They also would die outside the land of Canaan. Why? Because they too chose to rebel against God in a certain way. Moses, remember, he struck the rock. And God said, Moses, because you have done that, you will die in the wilderness. You're not gonna enter the land. Now, Moses was still a believer, obviously. He's Moses. But yet, because of his rebellion against God in striking the rock, God caused him to die physically in the wilderness. Aaron, the same thing. He didn't enter the land as well. Now, later, the Jewish generations in the days of Jeremiah would have this same decree placed on them. God was forgiving their sins as a remnant was turning to him, right? Jeremiah was preaching and, and, and there were still believers. But yet because of their sin and them turning their back on God, God decreed Babylon is gonna come and there's you know, no amount of repentance is gonna change it. Babylon will come. Physical judgment will come. Later, and even featured to us, there will be the great tribulation, which is decreed because Jacob's hardness of heart. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. God has decreed that there will be a period of seven years, according to Daniel, that will come on this earth. It will be great tribulation. Many people are gonna get saved during the tribulation. And many people will get saved before the tribulation, but that doesn't change the fact that judgment will come. Now there's one more judgment that will come on a specific Jewish generation. Matthew 24 says that the tribulation will be on that Jewish generation. Jesus said, those Jews who are here at this time I should I say to you, will not pass till they see all these things come to pass. He's talking to the Jews. But there is one more judgment that will come on a Jewish generation, and that judgment came almost 40 years after Jesus' death. We know it now to be 70 AD. Listen to what Jesus spoke of this judgment as in Matthew 23, 34 through 24, verse two. Here's what Jesus said. Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes, some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to the city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on this earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assured I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall not see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up and showed him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assured I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, just as God's judgment of death came upon the Jewish generation in the wilderness some 40 years after they sinned, even so, the judgment in 70 AD came upon that Jewish generation who also sinned some you know, 40 years after Jesus' death. And so this is the judgment that the writer is talking about here. Now, the early church clearly understood this, on the day of Pentecost, Peter exhorted the Jewish believers to repent and come to Jesus. And then he commanded them publicly 
to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Why? Later he would say, as an answer of good conscience. They would be identified with Christ and not the wicked generation, the Jewish generation that would receive this judgment we know now to be in 70 AD. Peter said that, be saved from this wicked generation, the generation that crucified their own Messiah as he preached about. So it's physical judgment that is coming. Often people say, well, he's talking about people losing their salvation. Well, no, it it doesn't fit the scriptures at all. That Jewish generation in the wilderness was still believers, but yet physical death was their judgment. And the same thing throughout the scriptures. If these believers would turn their back on the Lord, then they would be identified with that Jewish generation that would receive physical judgment, and it happened. Titus led his legions in of Rome into Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple and killed many Jews. And if these Jews would return back to the temple in Judaism, they would be part of that generation that would receive that judgment, which was coming. Now, the writer probably didn't know when that generation was gonna be judged, but nevertheless, it was future from when he was writing. Now we come to our second point. In verses 12 through 15, the writer's personal and pointed application. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And so the writer says, hey guys, beware. This word can be translated, take heed. See, once again, these writers or these readers were, were brethren. They were fellow brethren to this reader here. He said, hey guys, brethren, you know, fellow believers, listen, beware. So the writer, like Moses, Joshua, and Caleb, they were encouraging them not to rebel against God. Don't make that same mistake. Don't rebel against him. The rebellion would, ha- would be to have an evil heart of unbelief. The word unbelief does not mean to have a lack of knowledge or to have honest doubts and fears. People have that. Believers have that. But unbelief implies a willingness, an, excuse me, an unwillingness to believe the word of God. So just to flat out say no. Now the specific act that this rebellion would be demonstrated in would be in departing from the living God. Now I'm told that this Greek word used for depart can be translated apostasy. And so really this clarifies and really brings out what the writer's talking about. These Jewish Christians were thinking about denouncing their Christian faith and returning back to their old life in Judaism. The returning, this, this return in Judaism was not going from one religion to another, but it was in leaving the living God. You see, God has established that through Christ and him alone is the way to him. No man shall come to the Father but through me, Jesus said. And so, you know, so it's not like, well, hey, we can go back to Judaism and still come to God. And God says, no, you're going back to an apostate religion. Any religion that says that you can come to God apart from Jesus Christ is an apostate religion. It's a false religion. Yes, Judaism was God's true religion in the Old Testament, but God had fulfilled that. He's, you know, in in the ritual and the types and things. Now he's pointing to Jesus. To return back to Judaism would be to be turning from God who offers salvation in a relationship to man through Jesus. Now notice these believers' response to one another, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So the church is not an organization, but it's a living organism. We're called the body of Christ. And since we're the body of Christ, we have a responsibility for one another. We have a responsibility to look out for each other, just as your hand, right, is in connection with, you know, your body. 
I mean, this hand doesn't really care. Well, I don't really care if you have pain as long as I'm good, right? And so in the same way as the body of Christ, we need to look out for one another. And that's what he says here. We need to exhort one another daily. This means to um, encourage one another daily. We're sinners. We need encouragement. Remember that the Hebrews were Christians and they were even thinking about leaving the Christian faith. Now, as we're gonna see that if they were true Christians, they would, have, they would abide in the Christian faith. But nevertheless, that doesn't stop from tempting them to do it. And so, I mean, the enemy, he's vicious. I mean, you know, you're a Christian, you're set in, in, in your Christian faith, but that doesn't mean that the enemy can't attack you to think about doing crazy things, right? And so we as believers come alongside of each other and say, that's crazy, why do you think that? I don't know, pray for me, okay, pray for me, you know, kind of thing. We encourage one another in this. And that's what the writer wanted these believers to do. He wanted, you know, he wanted them to minister one to another. You see, the church is not a place of perfected saints. It's a gathering of works in progress. And you and I are part of that work as we minister one to another. So as these believers were to walk with the Lord, they were to daily guard their hearts from sin. Exhort one another daily. It's a daily thing. They were to guard their hearts daily from sin. Sin hardens the heart and it deceives you. That's what he says here. Sin makes you no longer sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And because of that, it puts distance between you and God. Now, that doesn't mean that God leaves you, but you leave God because sin hardens the heart. Paul talked about the callous heart, right? Which is what happens, you know, when you get a callous, it becomes tough. You know, you lose some of the feeling. The same way, sin, sin hardens the heart. It makes you callous to the spirit of God. We begin distancing ourselves from the Lord. Sin also brings deception, this deception, I believe, is linked to the hardening of the heart because of sin. The more a person gives in to their sin, the harder their heart becomes. And after a while, they lose that sensitivity of the Holy Spirit and his conviction, and they can actually begin thinking that they're okay. They can begin lying to themselves and thinking, well, I know when I was a first a believer, I knew that I would be convicted about this, but now I'm not convicted about this anymore. It must be okay now. Well, no, maybe you're, you're allowing that door to be opened up to sin and you're, and you're becoming desensitized to it. You need to be aware of that. Beware of sin or any kind of interest in it. We need to make sure that our heart is not becoming hard or that we're in no way deceiving ourselves thinking that it's okay to sin, lying to ourselves. Verse 14, for we become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. These believers were encouraged to tell one another that compromise was no option as a true Christian. Rather, these believers were to press forward in their faith because they were partakers of Christ. Now, what would be the evidence that they were partakers of Christ? If they would hold fast the beginning of their confidence steadfast to the end. The evidence that they were true believers is that they would abide in Christ and continue to press forward in their faith. That's what the writer is saying here. And to not abide in Christ would be, yes, to miss out on the good things that God had for them, but also would be to declare that they were never saved in the first place. Verse 15, while it said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So once again, the writer points back to this warning. He said, the only response of a believer after receiving this warning is to hear and to heed the word of God. There's no sleeping on it. There's no making a decision tomorrow saying, oh, I'm gonna think it through 
And if it works out, well then I'm gonna you know, repent and press forward. No, he said, look at biblical history. It's clear. The choice that you make daily to heed or to harden your heart to God's word will affect you. It will affect you severely. Some decisions that we make as a Christian, you can't go back on, right? Some of them have lasting consequences. Like, I'm just using an example, like having an affair on your spouse. I mean, there is consequences to that. I mean, you think, oh, it's just a small sin. Well, no, it's a big sin. That one act, that consequence, you know, will destroy your marriage, right? And so, and so there are many choices that you can make as a believer that, that there are consequences for. These believers would have that kind of decision to make. They were not to depart from God and go back to Judaism, but they were to press forward in their faith. Now, applying it to our heart, well, we need to make sure that we're pressing forward into the victorious Christian life. That's what we're gonna look at next week, the rest that God had for them. It's really sad in contrast in these two, the warning and what happened you know, to, to Israel and what they could have had. They could have had rest from all their enemies if they would have just obeyed God and followed his word. In the same way, people who give in to sin and reap the consequences all have the same confession, all have the same response. I wish I'd never done that. I wish I never hardened my heart to God. I, never, I wish I never went down this path to begin with. Well, we can nip it in the bud right now by just checking our heart and saying, you know what, Lord, when you speak your word, I wanna hear your voice. I'm gonna hear and I'm gonna heed the things you say to me.